Sherry, do you remember the movie My Cousin Vinny? Yeah, mostly. I love that movie. <laughs> you do? Yeah. What's Who's the lead guy actor? Joe Pesci. Joe Pesci, right. <laughs> Super New York, New York accent. And at the beginning of the movie, <laughs> the judge tells him, because he, he wears this leather... Suit. Leather, well, like, no, it's right? just a leather coat. I don't even know if he has a tie. I don't remember. But he, So he's a lawyer, and he goes to court... And he wears this leather coat, and the court's in Alabama, I think, somewhere very southern. And the judge tells him, tomorrow when you come back into my courtroom, you dress appropriately. Meaning you wear a suit. Yeah. And he comes back in the next day, and he's dressed the same way, and the judge says something about it. The judge says, why, you know, I told you to dress appropriately in my courtyard. And he goes, oh, you were serious about that? (laughs) I think that's his, I think that's the exact line. Oh, you were serious about that? Well, that, I know this is a long setup to get to my little punchline here, but that is how I feel about the recovery for the loved one of the alcoholic in Alcoholism Recovery. Oh, you were serious about that? So what I mean is, as the as the drinker, like, recovery is obvious, right? You either stop drinking or you don't stop drinking. Now, there is such a thing as a dry drunk, and you can be sober and not do any of the work and be a miserable son of a bitch for yourself and everyone around you. Like, so you can be sober without recovery, but for the, well, maybe I can't even say for the most part. But if you are in recovery and you're doing a good job of recovery, the telltale sign that you're doing a good job of recovery is you stop drinking and you don't go back to drinking. Like, you're just done because you're in the process of recovery. But for the, but, for the person that loves the alcoholic or the people that love the alcoholic and are close to them, those people have to recover too. And we say that and, you know, we do some work toward it, but there's no yes or no. There's no, oh, I, I'm an alcoholic. My wife, Sherry, is not. And um, she's been in recovery for six months, but now she's she's wedding again. She's not drinking again. Like that wasn't your thing. So there's no... There's no measure by which you say, is the recovery succeeding or failing for the loved one of the alcoholic? Does that make sense? Yeah. Because I, I, if you don't understand, I, I don't think anyone who's listening is going to No, understand. like for the first part of that. Oh, you were, were serious talking, about that? I just kept thinking about... Joe Pesci? No, not Joe Pesci. I think Melissa the best Tomei? character is That's Melissa Tomei. And she's like, oh yeah, you blend, you know, like that. Um, But I think... You're right, there's, like, no, like, benchmark of failed recovery. For the loved one. For the loved one. Like, if you go back to drinking, you fall off the wagon, you know. um, And then you kill me, then that would mean your recovery (laughs) wasn't going well. Yeah, but I'm saying there's, like, there's not a definite benchmark. Yeah. and And a measuring aspect. Now, not every, you know, relapse and slip up is gonna result in isn't an automatic failure. Yeah, relapse is not equal failure, I agree. Yeah, but it's pretty kind of obvious that there's some sort of measuring tool for the alcoholic, but for the the people around them and the loved one, and especially the person that's in a close relationship, a marriage, or or a very intimate relationship, um, there isn't, isn't a good measuring tool. You're right. 
So on this episode of the Intoxicated Podcast, I am Matt Salis and I'm joined, as I often am, by my beautiful and lovely wife, Sherry Salis. And the topic is just that, is recovery for the loved one in an alcoholic marriage or alcoholic relationship. And we want to start, let's, let's back up and start earlier and talk about what the process of recovery looks like for the drinker. Now, even before the process of recovery starts, the, the active alcoholism, I think, would be universally agreed upon to be a very selfish act. The act of, of choosing to drink over the other priorities in one's life is kind of by definition selfish. So when I was drinking, if you had said, hey, Matt, um, I think you are prioritizing alcohol over me and the kids... I would have said, you are crazy. I am not doing that. You are my wife. These are my offspring. You, we have four kids. You five are the most important things in my life by far. I would have said that and I would have believed it. One of the things about, you know, alcoholism is is just, it is the disease of lies and deceit and dishonesty. But a lot of times you're lying to yourself. Because you knew that I had put alcohol as the top priority in my life, that drinking was above all things, including you and the kids. I didn't know that. You couldn't have convinced me that. I would have gone to my grave telling you that you guys were more important to me than alcohol was. But it's not true. Alcohol was, as I look back, booze, you know, I scheduled my life around when I was and was not going to drink. I always made sure I had plenty on hand. With the events that we chose to go to versus the events that we didn't choose to go to, we chose the drinking events. I chose the drinking events. If we were going to go out to a restaurant, I made sure they had a liquor license and I could get beer. Even if it was just we're going to get a burger with the kids, we were going somewhere that I could get a beer. Mm-hmm. And so it's just a very, very selfish disease. But then the drinker gets sober. So I decided, you know, we don't. I decided a bunch of times over the 10-year period that I define as my alcoholism that I was going to get sober. But let's just take the last time. Let's take the time that I actually made it to permanent sobriety. I decide I'm going to get sober, and I'm in this thing called early recovery, and I'm dealing with temptations, and I'm trying to change my patterns, and I'm trying to learn about brain chemistry, and I've got all this stuff going on to try to get healthy and to stay sober. That, too, is an extremely selfish act. Now, you know, I'm going to defend it a little bit because I think the selfishness in this case is useful and even necessary. Survival selfishness. That's right. You're in survival mode. You're trying to fight your subconscious mind that's trying to trick you into drinking and you're trying to change your nutrition pattern so that you can regenerate neurotransmitters in your brain and you're trying to learn all this stuff and at the same time I'm trying to teach you all this stuff because I want you to know so I'm talking incessantly to you about not only what I'm learning, but how bad I feel, my depression, my cravings for alcohol, how much I wish I could just be a normal drinker, all the stuff. So guess what? Now I'm sober and I'm thinking that fixed everything. I just got to maintain my sobriety. I got to figure out how to do that. But I'm thinking, all right, Sherry and the kids, they are my top priority. But you weren't. You still weren't. You were still taking second place to... But this time, instead of taking second place to alcohol, you were taking second place to not alcohol Mm -hmm. or 
sobriety. How did that make you feel? Yeah, I, I mean, it seems like it would be something intuitive that I would have recognized during your early part of sobriety. I mean, you had gone six months, you had gone nine months, you'd gone several months or weeks here and there. Um, so to fight the triggers and temptations, and I know that you and I talked about how you were going to just kind of stay off the radar or under the radar with friends and social events for a while, but still on the day-to-day, I didn't think about it because you only drank like Thursdays after soccer game and then Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So it wasn't at like the a, drinking, at the end of your drinking. So I didn't see it as like, I guess I didn't recognize how hard it would be to those triggers. If it was a Monday or Tuesday afternoon and it's five o'clock, you know, you're like kind of pacing the floor in your early sobriety. And I'm thinking you didn't even drink on Mondays or Tuesdays, but you explained to me later you were, you were getting hyped up and excited for your next time of drinking and you know, how great that was going to be. So I feel like it should be intuitive, but it was not obvious at all. You feel like the, the fact that, that it was going to be very selfish, and that hard. the early sobriety would be yeah. selfish and hard. So it surprised you when it was as hard for me as it was. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, because there were just, like, it would be like a weird day. and It wouldn't even be a normal time that you would have drunk anything. And I was like, well, it's just a Tuesday at, you know, 3.30. Like, what's the big deal? Yeah. But, you know, as we've gone down the road and discovered, there were lots of all these other different things and triggers, not just a day of the week event or... So I know that you never, when I was drinking and then when I would talk about or I would experiment with sobriety, I would try sobriety, you never had this misperception that sobriety was going to fix everything. But yeah. But you thought alcohol was the thing that was replacing you in the front seat of the car. And that if the alcohol was gone, you'd at least be in the front seat, right? You thought you'd be the top priority. Yeah. And then you weren't. Yeah. So. Lots of, you had to, I mean, there were times where you had to like just drive off and be by yourself for a while, which is very kind of uncommon for you because you're a bit of an extrovert and you like to be around us. So like that was kind of surprising or when you just needed to go and read and go on a walk or on a run and very needy of you very uh i need to talk to you about this i need you to hear about my pain i need you to soothe my pain yeah all of that um i also tried to remember like trying to keep the not keep the kids away from you like necessarily but like don't bother your dad with that right now just because i didn't want you know, I was also worried that anything could set you off. Yeah. You know. So you're trying to help me avoid triggers. Help you avoid triggers, but then also just help you avoid any extra stress because, and anxiety and worry. That prioritization of alcohol and then that prioritization of l- getting through early recovery, learning about what, what it was going to take, you've described that to me before as, I mean, we've never had any infidelity in our relationship. Um, as much turmoil as I've put you through and as much stuff as we've been through together, that's never entered in, thank God. But you've described that being second place, being the second highest priority is uh, an experience that's similar to 
going through being cheated on. Yeah. Like it's a it's a betrayal to the relationship how much you're in like almost love with this alcohol and it's has such a hold over you. So I know I used to say you love alcohol more than you love me and instead of, you know, saying, Oh, it's first like I just remember always saying, You love alcohol more than you love me. So that's why I feel like it was more of an ad- betrayal and adultery sort of I you know Because of the word love. Lo- because of the word love. Because I just that knew that level of betrayal. Yeah. Because like, there were choices. You had choices a lot of the times where it was either alcohol or me and you chose alcohol. And some are dramatic, but others are as mundane as going to get a lunch with the kids and you yeah. I want to go one place and they don't serve, you know, beer, which that's almost hard to imagine any place anymore. Um, but I would be like, you know, we really want to go there or we want to go and do this on a Sunday afternoon. And you're like, uh, I can't do it because I can't have alcohol. Even when I was with you, I was betraying you because like if we said, oh, it's Saturday night, we put the kids to bed, let's watch a movie. Let's do something as mundane and simple as watching a movie. And then, you know, I probably would have already had five or six beers going into the movie and then I'd pour myself another one or maybe two and then I was gone. Yeah. I was, you know, asleep, right? Asleep. I was passed yeah. out is what I was. Yeah. So there you are. We were going to watch this movie together and you're by yourself. Yeah. So the betrayal, the, you know, and and, and for anyone who, who who's listening who has experienced true adultery, yeah, really... we don't mean to, we, we don't mean to, um, dismiss that as as a minor infraction that's horrible i'm so thankful we've never had to deal with that and and no this is not the same it's not but it has similar characteristics right because there's something like the matter with one person because they're not getting what they want and their fulfillment in the relationship and the alcohol is kind of taking that just like having an affair with someone who meets some things that you're not getting in your relationship so you, with so your spouse. You, you felt like I was looking for something I couldn't get. I was looking for it somewhere else, basically. Yeah, like you were you were well you I didn't know exactly what you were looking for. Like to me, I didn't understand alcohol. It didn't have that hold and that effect over me when I drank. I mean, I think Your kisses needed to be more intoxicating, apparently. <laughs> apparently. I needed to put your BAC level up, but Yeah, I didn't know what was missing from the relationship or missing from me or what you needed. And so it was it was sort of baffling, too, that I thought, why would you want to put our marriage at risk and our life at risk in so many ways? Yeah. With continuing the behavior of drinking. So you had to deal with this in in two different ways already you had to deal with feeling like i was betraying you with alcohol and then to to a different extent i suppose but still i was betraying you in early sobriety because that's what i needed to do to get healthy you were maybe more supportive of that betrayal but it didn't change the fact that you were second on the totem pole yeah, and, and what, I feel like every conversation had to revolve around yeah, sobriety oh yeah. or something that you were learning well, or something. the only thing you can think about. You know, yeah. like when I was at work, I might have been thinking about work some of the time. But other than that, 
This is the only thing I was thinking about. Yeah. So, so you, you're, you've dealt with betrayal basically twice. And when we talk about the period of early recovery, I think it's important that we're kind of clear about that. Early recovery, for me, the, the really positive impacts of the work that I was doing started to be felt after about a year. And when I talk about positive impacts, the things that were so negative that they made me stop drinking were depression and anxiety. You know, my rock bottom, it, it wasn't an up in flames like I wrecked the car or I, or I hurt somebody or ended up in jail. Nothing like that. But, but it was debilitating depression like I cannot move kind of depression that was alcohol-induced. And so obviously the thing that I most wanted to go away in recovery was that depression anxiety to a degree as well but but the depression was the bigger thing and so at about a year in into early recovery i started the depression cloud started to lift and and small things everyday things that should bring me joy uh one of my kids does well uh in school or or we go to a band concert for one of the kids and you know they're smiling ear to ear that those kinds of things that should bring me joy, they hadn't for so long. I mean, it was like living in a cold gray sock. And then all of a sudden, after about a year, not all of a sudden, it came on gradually, but I started to feel better. And things, you know, if you gave me a hug and a kiss, that that started to feel good. If I saw a pretty sunset, wow, okay. That stirred a little bit of emotion. That hasn't happened in a long time. So the depression started to lift. Once that period of early sobriety ended. I had had my my many years of selfish drinking, my year-ish of selfish recovery. And then it started to transition at that point. And we started to look at recovering the relationship. And the reason we did that wasn't because we are geniuses. And it wasn't because, you know, some expert in the field had told us. It was because I was starting to feel better but sobriety wasn't fixing anything for the relationship. You and I were still really struggling. Um, in fact, I would say there are aspects of our relationship that were actually getting worse, not better. And shocked me. I mean, I think you you had a better feel for, you know, okay, hey, so sobriety isn't going to fix everything. There's a lot of resentment. There's a lot of pain. I, of course, thought as soon as I stopped drinking that you should come rushing into my arms with kisses of thankfulness and just adoring the unbelievably wonderful person that I was because I was sober and uh, that everything would be right with the world. Yeah, because you... And dogs and cats would be kissing and loving on each other. No, that could really happen. But you didn't realize the pain, like you said, the resentment and, like, the pain that had taken over the relationship and me. And because you were getting this negative substance out of your body... And you weren't feeling shameful and anxious and depressed, you know, yeah, like that. But it just left the relationship hurt because one side of the relationship was still hurting. Yeah. Well, and it made both sides of the relationship hurt because when you weren't, for instance, interested in me in bed or, you know, you weren't excited to see me and... 
you know, it, you were easily able to slip back into a place of anger. Uh, you know, what's that old, I know this is sexist, but the old saying, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Like that's kind of where we were. And I was confused and frustrated. And I think to a degree you were too, but I don't think it surprised you as much as it did me. But so after that first year of selfish recovery for me, everything's me, 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 I'm a drinker, I'm not a drinker, let's worry about me, we started to turn our attention to the relationship. And we started to work on things like resentment. We started to talk about the things that had happened in the past that, yes, I had apologized for when I was a drinker, but you know what? When you apologize as a drinker the day after you've done something, when the person you're apologizing to knows you're going to drink again, that apology is worthless because you're apologizing for something you're going to do again. I don't care that you're apologizing. Um, so there were lots of built-up resentments, and we had to go through those. We had to go through those one by one. Like I think that's important for people who haven't been through this process to understand. It wasn't enough for me to blanket say, yeah, sorry, I was an asshole for 25 years. Hope you're okay with that. We had to go through and say, hey, Let's talk about this instance. Let's talk about the time when we were uh, leaving for vacation in the morning and I way overdid it and we fought all night and I was awful to you all the way to the airport and then we had to go and fake it in front of the people we were vacationing with. Like we had to get into the details. And part of it was so you could hear me apologize. Part of it was for me just to hear you, for you to hear me acknowledge your pain, right? Yeah, I... I think sometimes, like, when you have those blanket apologies, um, or you have the apology when you're still drinking, you know, you're not aware of of the many layers it affected. Like, you, you know, like, so walking through that instance that you just said, there were so many things I don't think that you were quite getting and understanding, and how... It wasn't just my, how it affected me, it was how it affected the kids, it was how it affected the rest of the people, because there was, like, that level of tension, and, you know, just then your behavior because of the night before, and no sleep, then you were still drinking, so that affected your evening then with the rest of the group, because you were really intoxicated really quickly. Um, So, it was just, you know validating my feelings, but also so you could recognize how it just, I think that you used this term in one of your um, blog posts, that how it had just saturated every nook and cranny of our relationship, but how it did so in our lives. Like, I wanted you to, like, visualize and maybe have an imagery of what it was through sober eyes. So you could... Not just validate my feelings, but understand these were things that I dealt with fairly regularly while you were in, you know, la-la land. Yeah. I think you made a good point. I think it was really important for for you that I heard these details and that I didn't try to gaslight you and tell you that, oh, you're nuts. You don't remember it right. It wasn't as bad as you say. Because that's such an that's such an integral part of active addiction. As the drinker, you are lying to everybody, including yourself. Mm-hmm. So when I'm telling you, you're not Sherry, everybody drinks like this, it's not that big a deal. I'm not just saying that. 
I mean, I am saying that to get you off my back, but that's not the only reason. I'm also saying that because I want to believe it too. I want to believe everybody drinks like this. I want to believe everybody, you know, just has a couple cocktails after work and then eh, maybe they have a third, maybe a fourth, and then they don't remember some things the next day. I wanted to feel normal. Yeah. So I'm constantly telling you, you're wrong. You're looking at it wrong. So when we go through the resentments in our relationship recovery period, about a year after I'm sober, a huge piece of that is for you to hear me not try to knock the truth down and let the truth stand. So the apologies are part of it, but I've talked to many people in these situations who say, yeah, the apology, that's great, but what I need you to do is believe that it happened. Mm-hmm. And you feel that way, right? Yeah, and it's not because I wanted to just drag up the past that, and live that's in the an past. Important point. You're not anything. just trying to rub my nose. But in I it. just wanted you to understand because you know you were kind of shocked about in the beginning of how it wasn't getting better. But there was so much to it that it just transcended every aspect, and I just wanted you to hear and believe that it's. That it's not going to be easy. And also maybe for me because I have a really good memory and I have a short temper and I anger fairly easily that maybe I just wanted, you know, wanted to remind you of all this and I needed to talk through it just to kind of get it off of my chest again knowing that I had a sober ear. And a sober ear, but it was a sober ear who was willing to listen and then you would see that there's a lot of work ahead of us. You know, even when we were going through it, I, I I was willing, but I still didn't understand why we were going through it. I think now, three years into sobriety and having worked with lots of other people that are in similar positions, I've just learned so much from those experiences. Now I see it for what it was. It was... It was a combination of things. It was, yes, it was the apology. It was hearing a sober apology when the aftermath was in the past. It was you telling me about the aftermath and me not trying to tell you you were wrong. And it was you knowing that I now knew the truth. It was me listening attentively and letting you get it off your chest. And all, all three of those components are just huge. In addition to dealing with those resentments, we talked a lot about trust. We worked on trust. We sat down with the kids and let them get share their feelings with us, let them hear what I had to say in the way of an apology and an explanation, um, making sure that they knew that alcohol was out of our lives, and but that also that we were open for any kind of conversations um, going forward so that their, their health was of a top priority. So all of that kind of stuff, I would lump into the category of relationship recovery. So we've had Matt's recovery, and we've had relationship recovery. But the thing that kind of got ignored, going back to Joe Pesci and, oh, you were serious about that. You know, we never took the time to prioritize your recovery when all of that was happen happening. You know... When I was trying to keep myself from drinking, everything was me. I was the top priority. And yeah, Sherry needs to recover, but that can happen down the road. Or I guess we didn't even really know if that was necessary. Yeah, at that point, 
We didn't. Yeah. But I think once we became aware that, okay, the loved ones have a lot of stuff to deal with. Um, I thought by going through these relationship processes, we were kind of taking care of everything. But it wasn't until very recently that we've realized not only does Sherry need to recover, not only do you need to recover, but we needed to prioritize it. Just like I got to be selfish when I was the drinker and I got to be selfish in early recovery, it was time for you to be be selfish. And the reason I say that, you know, because recovery for you before that looked like this. It looked like, ah, I read an article and then a couple weeks went by and maybe... Maybe you and I had a little argument, so I went and I did a little internet search and I read another article or or somebody suggested something or or in one of my, because you're in a couple of different groups where you read books together. Mm-hmm. We read a book that it kind of related to some of the topics. So I, I looked into that author a little bit more and read some of that art, that author's articles. So it was really haphazard. It wasn't intentional. Mm-hmm. Definitely wasn't prioritized. Yeah. And what kept happening was the triggers, the things that used to really get you, used to be really huge emotional triggers for you, they they still existed. They weren't gone. And I was shocked, man. I thought, I've gotten sober and I've been sober for years now. We've worked on the relationship. What on earth is going on? But like an example would be... Um, you know, I would ask you a question, and the question would be as innocent as innocent can be. A, a direct example, we were, it's spring here in Colorado, and we had a nice sunny Saturday, and we we're both working in the yard. We're both doing different tasks in the yard, and you were using one of our leaf bags that goes straight to the, it's paper bag, it goes straight to the compost, and um, as opposed to using a plastic bag for your leaves this thing can get thrown straight into the compost because it's made out of paper. And you were using one of those for something. And I said, why are you using that bag? And I said it in that tone. I didn't say, why are you using my bag? I mean, that's how I would have said it if I had been drinking. Um, But I said, well, you know, why are you using that bag? And that was a trigger for you. Mm -hmm. That set you off. And you felt judged, right? Yeah. Yeah. I felt like I'm doing my work. You know, you're doing your work. I'm going to use this, you know, it'll break down in the trash, you know, a little bit better instead of having it in a plastic bag because it would have some yard waste, but some stuff that wouldn't be compostable. So, and all of that explanation is fine, but I thought, you know, but geez, like, why can't you just, you know, sort of get off mind your your own business and just let me do my chore and you do your chore and. Why are you asking so many questions? Like, and, and I'm not trying to pick on you here, but it puts you in a bad place for kind of a, a while. Yeah. Yeah. So then any communication after that between you and I was difficult. Yeah. Well, and I think that I had realized later on that day, but I had been thinking about it, I realized that I had just really started to like kind of rebel against anything that you were saying in a way. And I was just like, I just been like tired of feeling like low self-esteem and judged and like, you know, questioning, like, why do I always care so much? Like, you know, I, you know what, how I'm going to do things and how it's going to re everybody else is going to respond or, why do I care so much what everybody else thinks? And 
So it had just gotten to this point of like boiling point almost. And that part, that that caring what everybody else thinks, that is like the cornerstone of codependency, right? Yeah. I'm I mean, I I guess I had always heard the term, but I hadn't really looked into what it meant and sadly it talked about like dysfunctional childhoods and things like that and so most of us do have a lot of codependency tendencies because there's like 18 of them or something yeah codependency is not just for alcohol like and i guess yeah and and uh like one of the codependency um behaviors it can also come out with like lots of anger and i feel like i had lots of anger and i feel like when you and i have something as simple as why are you using that leaf bag you know i get defensive i get judged mind your own business matt you know just leave me alone let me do my own thing you know i and so you got a brain and then it just because i'm like fear and anger and disappointment and hurt from the years that just like piled up so it was like i was i've always been full up so it's so easy for me to just flip into this really bad pattern of behavior and you know sometimes you just have to you know when you're really really ready to do the work to change and I had always kind of blown it off and because you know sometimes they would just go away and after a day or two of negative conversations but I think that description is is just really perfect if if you're in a healthy mental state and somebody says something that irritates you, you know, even if, like in this case, I didn't, there was nothing behind my question about why you using that bag. It was legitimately, I was just curious. I, I didn't care. It's a paper bag. But, but if, if you, if you're healthy, then you've got room. You talked about being full up. If you're healthy, you're not full up and you can process that and you can take that question. You can say, uh, okay, that seemed a little judgmental, but maybe it wasn't. And then you just move on with your day or whatever. But when you're full up, there's no room for that. There's no room for absorbing a comment that you question the intent of and processing it healthily. The The anger's right there. Right. It's right there. It's going to spill well, out because you're full. Yeah, and I think that, you know, because of some things that I've experienced in my life, like, those are kind of leading questions. And it's not just my family, but it's a lot of people. They're sort of, I view them as sort of passive-aggressive questions. Sure. Like, well, what are you doing with that bag? You're so idiotic, you can't use the other bag that's right for it. So That's what you heard. That's what I even heard. Even though that's not Exactly, what but that's how, but I think it's a... See how defensive I'm getting? Yeah. So, so I know that just from people, there is like that passive-aggressive nature sometimes in some of those questions because then it's just it's almost like I felt like it's almost a trap to set you up for well this is the wrong kind of bag and this is why you're wrong for using it and just you know does that make sense like perfectly so and I think maybe because maybe I've been I, I just kind of have a negative viewpoint of a lot of people and I noticed that it it affects our relationship more where I'm easy to like get triggered by you, but I noticed that it has started to manifest itself in 
different relationships. Like people that like I work admire. Yeah, and people that I admire and respect that's on a board and like we're on a board together and like if it's something said and then I'm like I leave the meeting and I feel a little hurt and disgruntled or um, a book club that I'm in, like just those sort of things that I'm like, that's when I'm like, this is getting out of hand. That I feel like everything is a setup and a passive aggressive and, and judgy that, way. That's so important because so many times when people are, I'm going to bring it back to alcoholism now, when people are in an alcoholic relationship and the, they just can't make the relationship work and the person who was not the drinker goes back out in the big bad world and meets somebody else, if they haven't addressed what that alcoholic relationship did to them, they're going to they're gonna carry all that same you know cup full of anger with no room to process they're going to take that into their next relationship. And people largely don't realize that. I didn't realize that. I mm-hmm. I just, I mean, lots and lots of times people think, well, I left that son of a bitch behind, so now everything's fine. Oh, this new person I'm with doesn't drink. Everything should be good. It's, it's not. Yeah. You got to fix it. Yeah. And I mean, I think that goes for a lot of things like that happen if you grew up in a dysfunctional family and... You know, and a lot of us people who marry people that drink heavily or drink normally and then end up becoming an alcoholic, like we've had experience with alcohol in the past, whether it's, you know, close, someone close to us, like a parent. So I think that like, this is just a real eye-opening testimony to the fact that you, that there should be a lot more stuff going on for premarital counseling and it's like, you know, deal with your own stuff and then deal with it together and then get married because yeah. it it just seeps in. And I know that we've talked often about, not just on the podcast, but about how, what the percentages of relationships that get through the alcoholism, get through sobriety, and then it starts to fall apart because it takes a lot of work. Yeah. Because both parties yeah. need Sometimes a lot of work. Sometimes the alcohol keeps all the problems covered up because you just, it's like... It's like when you talk about it, if you've got one of those jobs where you never get to make progress, all you're doing is putting out fires all day. Well, that's what yeah. alcoholism is like. Active alcoholism is like you're arguing, then you're licking your wounds, and you're moving on. Then you're arguing, then you're licking your wounds, and you're moving on. And there's never just, yeah. there's never any repair taking place. You're just both holding on by your fingernails. Because the repair can sometimes be really hard. And, like, we kind you're of... You're right. It's harder than holding on in some ways. Yeah. I mean, like, what I realized was that... The alcoholism in our lives did not make me feel very worthy. I had I have low self-esteem, the behavior patterns. And it's just set us up for this relationship where I didn't even like you. And I know that you still probably can't imagine, but I do feel pretty good that I've heard at least three um, different therapists and counselors and that... That's a very common statement is for people to come in in relationship therapy and be like, I love them so much, but I don't like them. But I just started to not like the person you were. And so I almost, like I said, a little bit like a teenager rebellion. I didn't want to learn to like the person that you'd become after alcohol. And they're becoming. Yeah. Because I was so insecure and so had such low self-esteem. And I put my recovery in the back seat. So we came to the realization that 
your recovery needs to be the priority. We've had Matt's drinking was the priority. Matt's Matt's early sobriety was the recovery. Oh, let's work on the relationship. Let's make sure the kids are good. And those are all things that are natural fits for someone that has codependency issues. Making sure everybody else is good, putting everyone else's uh, comfort in front of yours, that's, that's a big part of what codependency is all about. So this idea of prioritizing your recovery now and whatever it takes, Sherry, you know, whoever you need to talk to, what, you know, whatever you need to read, whatever amount of time you need alone to work on things, whatever amount of time you want to talk to me, when you want to talk to me, it's going to be about you and your recovery. We're not talking about my recovery. We're not talking about my work day. We're not talking about my frustration. We're talking about you, Sherry. Um, that it's your turn. It's your turn for that to be the priority. But it's not as simple as just saying that. For mm-hmm. for selfish old Matt over here, for the selfish old drunk, you want to make it my turn? No problem, you know? Yeah, I it mean, was well, my turn when I, when I was drinking and when I was not drinking. I'm happy to have it be my turn. Yeah. But for you, it's not easy for you to say, yep, it's my turn. Yeah, I mean, just taking time to go and listen to a podcast or a book, um, a walk on an listening to an audiobook. You know, like I did that recently, but it was after dinner and um you after know, you make sure after everyone's make sure fed. everybody's taking your cuz that's what my excuse would be was, well, you know, I like before I'm making sure that Matt's getting his time and taken care of, so I need to be sure to be on with the kids all the time and then, you know, like make sure the chores are done in the house and that my job is done for, you know, the work that I do and making sure everybody's taken care of instead of just saying, yeah, it's, you know, five o'clock and I am not, you know, feeling real great. So I'm going to go on a walk or I'm going to go and finish reading this article or, you know, so it is kind of hard to step away from that role of always being the caretaker and take care of yourself. Yeah. But do do you see it, even if it's hard to do it, do you recognize the importance of it? <clears throat> I think I finally kind of do now after, you know, really kind of making it a priority because, you know, just realizing how this was affecting other relationships and how I was just so done of feeling like this and, you know, taking that time and the world didn't fall apart when I went on a walk in the evening, you know, after dinner. And the world hasn't fallen apart when I've exercised or I've taken the time to, you know, go and talk to a therapist. Like, everybody's still doing fine, you know. You guys are surviving. And I also have to, like, kind of throw it back to you that I have to trust you that you're going to, like, be there in my absence to do things. Now, luckily, our kids are older, you know, so it's not like they're always needing to be taken care of and looked after and attended to. But I kind of have to throw it back to you to trust you that you're going to be okay with me getting um, the time alone that I need or the time I need with talking to somebody. And also that if I say, hey, I'm just not feeling well tonight, can you do dinner or something? That you're going to 
you're going to do it. And I think that that's where I'm really lucky that I have a partner who understands the whole psychology of it all. Well, and I, I think... And appreciates. I, we've talked about a lot of this as, and use the word selfish, but the the last thing you just said points to the importance of doing this, doing the things we've done in the order we've done them in. You know, the pace could have been different. We, we've made lots of mistakes. I'm not by any means claiming that we've done this perfectly. And we've stumbled into doing it right, I think, in a lot of ways. But I had to get sober first. That had to be the focus. And then working on the relationship was good. And now working on you. And the reason that that's important is until, you know, recently, you wouldn't have trusted me to make sure everything was going to be okay and to keep things going and... and allow you wouldn't have been able to allow yourself to prioritize you because you know until i had proven myself in sobriety you couldn't feel comfortable letting go of some of the things that you do and and letting me take care of them is that a fair thing to say yeah yeah and also i think just um i know with alcoholism You've talked about, like, your anxiety and your control. Well, I think that we as codependents have a lot of anxiety and control. So if I said, oh, I cannot do it tonight, you know, can you make dinner? And say this was even just a year and a half ago. I might have been annoyed that you didn't talk to me about what I wanted you to make for dinner because I had a plan for the week. and Or maybe you used an ingredient that was supposed to go somewhere else. So I don't know if I could have given up that control of the orderliness in the family. Yeah. Because I just, you know, for one, I wasn't there, obviously, but I didn't realize, you know, that that control and orderliness and keeping everything going in a certain way and having that anxiety was part of codependency. Yeah. Well, you realize it now, and you're making progress. And I'm really proud of you for that. Thank you. You know, who knew three years ago how complex this would be? And who knew? I mean, I remember when somebody first explained to me what a dry drunk was. I was like, "That whatever. As long as you don't drink, you're fine. Just find a way to not drink. The, The concept of recovery for the drinker didn't even make sense to me you know, years ago and the idea that we would have to also work on the relationship and then also give you the space and time to work on you. Um, it was something that, uh, didn't click for a long time, but I'm so glad that it is now. And I'm so glad that you're taking it seriously and feel a sense of sense of urgency. And it makes me feel good that you trust me to that. Yes, you're right. In fact, the world will not come to an end (laughs) on my watch. (laughs) I will do my best to make sure of that. But it's good. We should make sure that everybody who's listening knows because this is audio and not video. I want to make sure everyone knows that my selfishness does continue. Because when we started this podcast episode, it was cloudy. And then about five minutes into recording, the sun came out. And the sun has been blaring in a window right on my beautiful bride, the side of her head. (laughs) And instead of me getting up and closing the blind because I was so focused on myself and what we were talking about. She's just been holding a elementary school folder for one of our kids that she got off the desk 
up by the side of her head the entire time we've been talking. She's been holding a folder to block the sun. Not and the I entire was time. Just so into myself and this podcast and oblivious <laughs> that I didn't bother to didn't shut that blind for you. Us. So that's okay. There you go. I'm self reliant in some ways. You are. And that's okay. You, to you be took care of your own self reliant to give my self esteem a boost, but it goes goes to show how focused you are on an intoxicated podcast. Are you serious about that? <laughs> Let's watch that movie now. I know. I was just thinking that should be that should be the movie we watch tomorrow. My cousin Vinny. Oh, well, yeah, for my wife, uh, priority one, not only in my life but in her own life for the first time, maybe ever. My wife, Sherry Salis, for Melissa Tomei, <laughs> for Joe Pesci. I am Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Intoxicated Podcast. <laughs>